Section 13 of A Popular History of France, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times, Volume 4, by Francois Guizot, translated by Robert Black. Chapter 38 Francis I and Charles V, Part 13. Whatever hand it was that shot down Bourbon, Rome, after his death, was plundered, devastated, and ravaged by a brutal, greedy, licentious, and fanatical soldiery. Europe was moved at the story of the sack of Rome and the position of the Pope, who had taken refuge in the castle of St. Angelo. Francis I and Henry VIII renewed their alliance, and a French army under the command of Lautrec advanced into Italy. Charles V, fearing lest it should make a rapid march to Rome and get possession of the Pope whilst delivering him from captivity, entered into negotiations with him, and, in consideration of certain concessions to the Emperor, it was arranged that the Pope should be set at liberty without delay. Clement VII was so anxious to get out of his position, lately so perilous and even now so precarious, that he slank out of the castle of St. Angelo in the disguise of a tradesman the very night before the day, fixed by the Emperor for his liberation. He retired to Orvieto, on the territory occupied by the French army. During this confusion of things in Italy, Charles V gave orders for arresting in Spain the ambassadors of Francis I and of Henry VIII, who were in alliance against him, and who, on their side, sent him two heralds at arms to declare war against him. Charles V received them in open audience at Burgo on the 22nd of January, 1528. I am very much astonished, said he to the French envoy, to find the King of France declaring against me a war which he has been carrying on for seven years. He is not in a position to address me such a declaration. He is my prisoner. Why has he taken no notice of what I said to his ambassador immediately after his refusal to execute the Treaty of Madrid? Charles V now repeated, in the very terms addressed to the French ambassador, the communication to which he alluded. The king, your master, acted like a bastard and a scoundrel in not keeping his word that he gave me touching the Treaty of Madrid. If he likes to say to the contrary, I will maintain it against him with my body to his. When these words were reported to Francis I, he summoned on the 27th of March, 1528, the princes of the blood, the cardinals, the prelates, the grandees of the kingdom, and the ministers from foreign courts, and, having given a vivid account of his relations with Charles V, I am not the prisoner of Charles, he said. I have not given him my ward. We have never met with our arms in our hands. He then handed his herald, Guienne, a cartel written with his own hand, and ending with these words addressed to Charles V. We give you to understand that, if you have intended, or do intend to charge us with anything that a gentleman loving his honor ought not to do, we say that you have lied in your throat, and that as often as you say so, you will lie. Wherefore, for the future, write us nothing at all, but appoint us the time and place of meeting, and we will bring our sword for you to cross, protesting that the shame of any delay in fighting shall be yours, seeing that, when it comes to an encounter, there is an end of all writing. Charles V did not receive Francis I's challenge till the 8th of June, when he, in his turn, consulted the grandees of his kingdom, amongst others the Duke of Infantado, one of the most considerable in rank and character, who answering him in writing, the jurisdiction of arms extends exclusively to obscure and foggy matters in which the ordinary rules of justice are at a discount. But, when one can appeal to oaths and authentic acts, 
I do not think that it is allowable to come to blows before having previously tried the ordinary ways of justice. It seems to me that this law of honor applies to princes, however great they may be, as well as to knights. It would be truly strange, my lord, that a debt so serious, so universally recognized, as that contracted by the King of France, should be discharged by means of a personal challenge. Charles V thereupon sent off his herald, Burgundy, with orders to carry to Francis I an appointment for a place of meeting between Fontarabia and Andai, in such a spot as by common consent should be considered most safe and most convenient by a gentleman chosen on each side. And this offer was accompanied by a long reply which the herald was at the same time to deliver to the king of France, whilst calling on him to declare his intention within forty days after the delivery of that letter, dated the 24th of June, in default whereof, said Charles, the delay in fighting will be yours. On arriving at the frontier of France, the Spanish herald demanded a safe conduct. He was made to wait seven weeks from the 30th of June to the 19th of August, without the king's cognizance, it is said. At last, on the 19th of September, 1528, Burgundy entered Paris and was conducted to the palace. Francis I received him in the midst of his court, and as soon as he observed the entrance of the herald, who made obeisance preliminary to addressing him, Herald, cried the king, all thy letters declare that thou bringest the appointment of time and place. Dost thou bring it? Sir, answered the Spaniard, permit me to do my office, and say what the emperor has charged me to say. Nay, I will not listen to thee, said Francis, if thou do not first give me a patent signed by thy master, containing an appointment of time and place. Sir, I have orders to read you the cartel, and give it you afterwards. How pray, cried the king, rising up angrily, doth thy master pretend to introduce new fashions in my kingdom, and give me laws in my own court? Burgundy, without being put out, began again. Sir, nay, said Francis, I will not suffer him to speak to me before he has given me appointment of time and place. Give it me, or return as thou hast come. Sir, I cannot, without your permission, do my office. If you will not deign to grant it to me, let me have your refusal handed me, and your ratification, I of my safe conduct, for my return. I am quite willing, said the king. Let him have it. Burgundy set off from Madrid, and the incident was differently reported by the two courts, but there was no further question of a duel between the two kings. One would not think of attempting to decide, touching this question of single combat, how far sincerity was on the side of Francis or of Charles. No doubt they were both brave, the former with more brilliancy than his rival, the latter, at need, with quite as much firmness, but in sending challenges one to the other, as they did on this occasion, they were obeying a dying-out code and rather attempting to keep up chivalrous appearances than to put seriously in practice the precedents of their ancestors. It was no longer a time when the fate of a people could be placed in the hands of a few valiant warriors, such as the three Harati and the three Curiati, or the thirty Britons and the thirty English. The era of great nations and great contests was beginning, and one is inclined to believe that Francis I and Charles V were themselves aware that their mutual challenges would not come to any personal encounter. The war which continued between them in Italy was not much more serious or decisive. Both sides were weary of it, and neither one of the other of the two sovereigns espied any chance of, of success. The French army was wasting itself in the kingdom of Naples. Upon petty, inconclusive engagements, its commander, Lautrec, died of the plague on the 15th of August, 1528. A desire for peace became day by day stronger. It was made, first of all, at Barcelona on the 20th of June, 1529, 
between Charles V and Pope Clement VII. And then a conference was opened at Cambrai for the purpose of bringing it about between Charles V and Francis I likewise. Two women, Francis I's mother and Charles V's aunt, Louise of Savoy and Margaret of Austria, had the real negotiation of it. They had both of them acquired the good sense and the moderation which come from experience of affairs and from difficulties in life. They did not seek to give one another mutual surprises and to play off one another reciprocally. They resided in two contiguous houses, between which they had caused a communication to be made on the inside. They conducted the negotiation with so much discretion that the petty Italian princes who were interested in it did not know the result of it until peace was concluded on the 5th of August, 1529. Francis I yielded on all the Italian and Flemish questions, and Charles V gave up Burgundy, and restored to liberty the king of France's two sons, prisoners at Madrid, in consideration of a ransom put at two millions of crowns and of having the marriage completed between his sister Eleanor and Francis I. King Henry VIII complained that not much account had been made of him, either during the negotiations or in the treaty, but his discontent was short-lived, and he nonetheless came to the assistance of Francis I in the money questions to which the treaty gave rise. Of the Italian states, Venice was most sacrificed in this accommodation between the kings. The city of Cambrai, said the Dodge, Andrew Gritty, is the purgatory of the Venetians. It is the place where emperors and kings of France make the republic expiate the sin of having ever entered into alliance with them. Francis went to Bordeaux to meet his sons and his new wife. At Bordeaux, Cognac, Amboise, Blois, and Paris, galas, both at court and amongst the people, succeeded one another for six months, and Europe might consider itself at peace. The Peace of Cambrai was called the Ladies' Peace in honor of the two princesses who had negotiated it. Though morally different and of very unequal worth, they both had minds of a rare order, and trained to recognize political necessities, and not to attempt any but possible successes. They did not long survive their work. Margaret of Austria died on the 1st of December, 1530, and Louise of Savoy on the 22nd of September, 1531. All the great political actors seemed hurrying away from the stage, as if the drama were approaching its end. Pope Clement VII died on the 26th of September, 1534. He was a man of sense and moderation. He tried to restore to Italy her independence, but he forgot that a moderate policy is, above all, that which requires most energy and perseverance. These two qualities he lacked totally. He oscillated from one camp to the other without ever having any real influence anywhere. A little before his death, he made France a fatal present. For, on the 28th of October, 1533, he married his niece Catherine de' Medici to Francis I's second son, Prince Henry of Valois, who by the death of his elder brother, the Dauphin Francis, soon afterwards became heir to the throne. The Chancellor, Anthony Duprat, too, the most considerable up to that time amongst the advisers of Francis I, died on the 9th of July, 1535. According to some historians, when he heard in the preceding year of Pope Clement VII's death, he had conceived a hope, being already Archbishop of Sens and a Cardinal of succeeding him, and he spoke to the King about it. Such an election would cost too dear, said Francis I. The appetite of cardinals is insatiable. I could not satisfy it. Sir, replied Duprat, France will not have to bear the expense. I will provide for it. There are four hundred thousand crowns ready for that purpose. Where did you get all that money, pray? asked Francis, turning his back upon him. And next day he caused a seizure to be made of a portion of the Chancellor Cardinal's property. This, then, exclaimed Duprat, is the king's gratitude towards the minister who has served him body and soul. 
"'What has the cardinal to complain of?' said the king. "'I am only doing to him what he has so often advised me to do to others.' The last of the chancellor's biographers, Marquis du Prat, one of his descendants, has disputed this story. However that may be, it is certain that Chancellor Duprat, at his death, left a very large fortune which the king caused to be seized and which he partly appropriated. We read in the contemporary journal D'Ambourgeois de Paris, published by Ludovic Lalanne, 1854, page 460, when the chancellor was at the point of death, the king sent Monsieur de Brion, admiral of France, who had orders to have everything seized and all his property placed in the king's hands. They found in his palace at Nantouille, eight hundred thousand crowns in all his gold and silver plate and in his hercules house close to the augustins at paris where he used to stay during his lifetime the sum of three hundred thousand livres which were in coffers bound with iron and which were carried off by the king for and to his own profit End of section thirteen